really difficult to wrap your mind around or can be is that we have this very human tendency to want to categorize things as good or bad um, or like Welcome to Season 6 of Talking Home Renovations with the Housemaiden. I am your host, Catherine McPhail. I am an architect. I practice in Massachusetts. My specialty is additions and renovations to older homes. I'm especially interested in sustainable renovations and new technologies. This season, I'll be speaking with women in renovations. These women could be in construction, real estate, design. It could be homeowners with a story to tell. Each will bring her experience and advice to people who are planning a home renovation of their own. The first five seasons have covered all aspects of home renovations from foundations to roofing, sustainable renovations, DIY projects, how to hire professionals, and there are lots of home renovation stories and advice from all types of people. A season of women in construction would not be complete without an episode from Christine Williamson an architect and building scientist who I admire. She was a guest on my show back in spring of 2021, and we are revisiting that episode this week. We got into some extensive discussions about wall assemblies and with a focus on insulation. Christine's worked all over the world consulting for restorations, forensic investigations of building failures, risk mitigation, and she also teaches architects about building science through the Building Science Fight Club. I hope you find some answers to your insulation questions in my conversation with Christine. But Christine, so a listener asked me about insulation, right? So I thought, well, I could talk about insulation, but I don't have anything. I'm not an expert on insulation. I mean, I feel like being an architect, you just have to kind of know about a lot of different things and then sometimes call in the experts for a more interesting version. So that's why I contacted you. Well, I'm pro insulation. I know you're pro insulation. Pro insulation. <laughs> I'm also pro insulation. Just for the record, uh, that's it. That's all you needed to know, right? <laughs> well, I think for homeowners, like from a homeowner's point of view, I think they're told a lot of different things about insulation yeah. and which one's the best one and which one you can't install and which one's going to cause mold. You know, so there's some fear around it, and then just trust for the insulation people who are trying to get you to hire them to, let's say, blow in blue jean insulation or whether, you know, so what, what's the real situation? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple, there's a bunch of things going on. One is that it's, um, it is a little bit difficult to learn about this stuff because after, I mean, after our formal education in, in the architecture and construction industry after the formal part of our education you graduate when you basically don't know a lot but whatever you graduate with some basic skills and then after that continuing education is essentially sponsored by material manufacturers for the most part mm-hmm. uh, I mean not entirely but I would I would characterize it as being certainly dominated by manufacturers and for the most part, I think those manufacturers actually do quite a good job. I, I really respect the materials manufacturers that view education and building science as something that's consistent with their brand. And I think a number of them do a very good job of doing that. But 
they're still manufacturers and they have a different agenda than, uh, than an architect, than a builder, than, than a homeowner. And it's, um, it's, it can be really confusing to try to sort of separate that out. And so that's one thing. So how do you kind of parse the difference between, you know, a story that's very convenient for one category of product or even a specific product or another. And then another part of it that is quite difficult to wrap your mind around or can be is that we have this very human tendency to want to categorize things as good or bad um, or like sort of a single scale, like what's a good car? What's a bad car? And like, what do you mean for that? There's what's a good car for what? For gas mileage? For funness to drive for, for the mountains, for, for the snow, for being on safari in a desert. I don't know. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of different um, criteria that go into this and insulation is like pretty much every other building material in that uh, whether something is appropriate or not depends on a really complicated mess of factors that are sometimes hard to make sense of. And one of the biggest factors is where we intend to install the insulation. And so that's one of the sort of big dividing lines is where do we intend to install the insulation? Is it on the outside or is it somewhere on the inside of our, of our structure? And if things are on, if we're, if we're intending to install insulation on the outside um, of our, of our structure. So let's, if we talk about a wall, for example, um, on the outside of our studs and our sheathing, that's called exterior insulation, very helpfully. And that insulation has to have certain characteristics that are different for the most part. And there's always exceptions to all of this stuff. So giant caveat here at the beginning, but there's some features that that insulation needs to have that insulation that we intend to put in a different spot doesn't have to have. Um, So for example, we need it to be relatively tolerant of wetting because we were putting it outside. So it needs to, it needs to be okay if we get it wet and then dry it out. Um, it needs to, it needs to still work. It needs to not degrade and, you know, separate and melt, melt or fall down our wall. It has to be, um, if it can't melt uh, and we have to, we might have some preferences among, among insulations that we can now instead that will hold up. Okay. Outside, we might have all kinds of preferences about, uh, how we, how we intend to fasten it. And, um, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of preferences here and there among different stuff. And that's okay too. So we can have a very practical preference on, well, this stuff is easier for me to handle than this other stuff. Um, let's see what else. What's another easy way of kind of categorizing stuff. So one is whether or not it holds up to, to water, depending on where you want to install it. Um, and then another really big one is whether or not the insulation is airtight or whether or not we need it to be airtight in the look again, in the location in which we're installing it. And a really good example of this is, um, okay, well, uh, let me begin by saying that we only need insulation to act, to be resistant to water and to act as insulation, to be thermally resistant when we are installing it on the exterior of our structure. So apart from that, we don't really care. It doesn't need to be airtight. It doesn't, we we pick whatever you want to pick as long as it can physically be supported and acts as insulation and is okay getting wet. When we start saying 
okay, well, what are my other options? I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't, for, for whatever reason, I can't install insulation on the exterior of my structure. Maybe it's, um, it's cost prohibitive. Maybe I'm doing some sort of renovation. And I don't want to touch the outside, I, whatever your reason is, or maybe it's going to complicate the trim detail where your, where your windows are to have insulation takes up space. Right. So right. you've changed the depth of your wall. And anyway, so for whatever reason, let's say you don't, you don't want insulation on the exterior, you can install insulation. And this is completely standard. We do this all the time. We install inexpensive fiberglass batch or blown cellulose insulation in our cavities. So we call the wall cavity, which is essentially the space between the studs, the wood studs. So for people who have watched houses get built, it's the pink fluffy stuff between the, the wood framing. And because that's inside, we can install, we have a great deal of choice in, in the type of installation we pick because it, um, it's protected, right? We're not, we're not getting it wet. Um, our one issue is that in very cold climates, we, um, we need that insulation to also be airtight. And the reason we need the insulation to be airtight is because we have a cold surface on the other side of it. Our exterior sheathing in a cold climate will be cold in winter. And when, if you think about you know, cold beer, warm day, uh, we get condensation on cold surfaces. So right. to fit, that's, I really like to, a lot of people talk about dew points. I find that an extremely cumbersome and confusing way of thinking about design. So I never talk about it. I mean, I guess I'm saying the words now, so I guess I do. But um, I just, I find it to not be particularly useful as a concept because it's, it's too abstract and, and we don't need it to be so abstract. Our problem really isn't this mythical dew point or where we move it. If we, where is it now? I can't see it. Is it over there? Who knows? Uh, mm -hmm. What we really care about is, is condensation. So we don't want to get water on surfaces that we need to, to keep dry because we build with things that are moisture sensitive, right? We build with a lot of, a lot of wood, a lot of drywall, flooring finishes, all kinds of stuff is moisture sensitive. So um, when we're looking to control condensation, it helps to think not so much in dew point, but in terms of cold surfaces. So are there any surfaces in my wall assembly, basically the layers that separate the inside from the outside that are cold? And in a sort of standard cavity insulated wall, that surface is our exterior sheathing. It's gonna be cold. So now we've got a cold surface. So, okay, so what are our options for controlling condensation? And there are only three options. The first option is to not have a cold surface in the first place. It's to warm okay. the surface. So drink warm beer. There you go. You don't get <laughs> condensation if you drink warm beer. The sort of architectural equivalent would be, we'll insulate that sheathing on the outside. It's warm. So we never have a cold surface to begin with. Now our cladding will be cold. The, the stuff outboard of the insulation will be cold, but it's outside. So who cares? The, so we can, that's one option for dealing with condensation is avoid having a cold surface in the first place. The second option is to prevent moisture from getting to that surface. This is quite a bit trickier. So this means we have to somehow prevent our warm interior moisture-laden air from wafting through the walls, wafting through that insulation and reaching 
the the cold surface of the sheathing where it will condense and then our walls will rot and the insulation will start smelling and it will be gross. It's very depressed. This is a yeah. stressful topic. This is a stressful topic. Okay. So, so that's, so that's a, the second, somehow we have to stop air from getting there. And then the third approach is usually very unrealistic, but, but whatever, the third approach would be to remove moisture from the air, remove so much moisture from the air that we don't get this, that we don't end up with condensation. Um, mm-hmm. And usually in architecture, we actually approach these these three things in combination. So we use some sort of combination of making the surface in question just a little bit warmer, stopping most of the air from getting there, and keeping the interior environment dry enough that it's um, that we hit the sweet spot of being in the safe zone. Now, an example of that would be like the way we go about designing a hospital or a pool. Environments that are, are are humidified have different require different approaches to design than environments that are sort of more more typical like a house. So in some environments, you might actually need to you know you you pursue these things with more or less discipline and and vigor. Um, but most of the time, we do some sort of combination. So in a very cold climate, the most the easiest, most realistic, low risk way is to avoid the problem to begin with by keeping the exterior sheathing warm enough. And we do that by insulating on the exterior. It is by far the most reliable solution, mm-hmm. uh, but it's expensive. Yeah. And now, what if, what if, like you said, they're just renovating and they are right or blowing in insulation is pretty common around here. A lot of the older houses and there are a lot of them don't have any insulation. So people are drilling holes in the exterior, filling the cavities with cellulose so um, what we have, what we need to pursue, so we've, if we rule out the exterior insulation, we can't do that anymore. That leaves us with stop air from getting to the cold surface and control the interior humidity. And insulating an old house is risky for that reason. So if you add insulation where there previously wasn't any insulation, not only are you adding a moisture sensitive material into your into your assembly, you're also the the very nature of the insulation reduces how how much your wall can dry, because mm. the whole point of it is to reduce energy flow. We want it to do that. It's that makes it effective, it makes it energy efficient, it makes us comfortable, all that great stuff. But that means there's less energy available for drying, so it can worsen these problems. Now, I don't want to freak people out about this. I'm gonna yeah. don't. So there's we have believe it or not, we have figured this out. So there are solutions <laughs> to this, but that's the, yeah. But this is um, the reason I bring this up is because this is the problem that we're trying to solve. So how can we, in a cost-effective way, increase comfort and energy efficiency, but not compromise durability by creating a problem that we didn't used to have? Um, Now, we find that even in brand new houses in climate zone five, we can build, it's still permitted, it's allowed to build, and you Google ASHRAE, if listeners are unfamiliar with the climate zones, Google ASHRAE, A-S-H-R-A-E, climate zone map. And you can see where you are. It's, it's like a color-coded map. It tells you, you find your city, you can find out what climate zone you're in. Okay. Um, I'll also link to that if oh, anybody perfect. wants to look in the show notes. Yeah, so so the, basically the colder it is, the more this is an issue. The more mild it is, it, the the less this is a this is an issue. Uh, so New York City, for example, is um, in climate zone. I think it's in climate zone four. 
but it's like the northernmost part of climate zone four. And then after that, so if you're in Boston, right? Boston area? Mm-hmm. Yep. You're climate zone five, I think. Wow. I think so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no reason you have to memorize the whole country. I have to, I have to, I have to look it up too. So anyway, but I'm, you don't start having a real issue with this until you're sort of on the on the edge in climate zone five. Everywhere else, it, this, this stuff matters quite a bit less in walls. And, uh, and assuming your building is not a humidified building. So just a typical building, climate zone five is where you start to be like, hmm, let's, we got to be really careful here. Anyway, so in climate zone five, the, the building code permits in most, most places, uh, they, you know, there's local variations here, but most, most building codes permit you to design a two by six cavity insulated wall with no exterior insulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no exterior way of controlling condensation. It's just the the insulation in the in the wall cavity, and that's pretty safe. It's it's permitted. Now you actually will. What a lot of people don't know is that you actually do get a little bit of condensation on the inside of your sheathing anyway. It's per, even though it's permitted by code, you will get a little bit of it. Uh, however, most of the time, it is not enough to cause a problem. It will end up re-evaporating. Like, you know, it'll get absorbed by the insulation, by the sheathing, and it'll re-evaporate. And most of the time we're fine. Where we sometimes run into problems is, let's say you've got a small house and you have a lot of people living in that house and producing a lot of humidity from cooking and showering. And I don't know, maybe you've got some teenagers who take long showers or you're, mm. you're, you're doing some fancy cooking in the, in the kitchen. It's getting a lot of use. You're cooking big meals for a lot of people. You're generating a lot of humidity. You, that, that can be a problem. You can have a condensation problem as a result, or you've got a steam room or something located on an yeah. exterior wall. Or um, what I'm saying though, is that there are conditions that can push a wall to failure in one case that don't apply equally to everyone else. So some of this is dependent on use. So in climate zone five, we find that we're just, you know, sort of the sweet spot, like condensation happens, but most of the time it's not a problem if we don't have very high humidity levels in the house for, you know, reasons related to occupancy and, and we seem to be fine in colder climates than that. We need, we need to pay a little bit more attention to this stuff and we need to do an even better job of stopping warm moisture laden interior air from reaching the sheathing. And again, there's two approaches to doing this. And here's where you get some sort of controversy in the industry. It's quite common in Europe, for example, and in Canada, and also in the US, to use what we call an interior vapor barrier or vapor retarder. So it's basically, your your listeners are probably familiar with seeing Tyvek on the outside of homes that controls Mm -hmm. water. Well, it's a sheet membrane like that that goes on the inside before the drywall goes up. And if you detail that to be airtight, uh, that can theoretically stop interior air, keep interior air inside, keeps it out of the insulation, out of the wall cavity. Um, And that, that is required by, there's some sort of vapor retarding something is required by code to varying degrees in colder climates. There are two problems with this. One problem is that we tend to not be able to do a very good job of actually making those things airtight. Now, and this is where some of the controversy comes in. There are people who absolutely insist that this is completely fine and that we're good at this. 
I disagree. I think that it's this trying to control moisture from the interior is inherently risky. And my approach, I'm maybe more conservative in, in this. And I, I have a, a lower tolerance for risk. And I would say, don't do this. And so if you're, if you're this close, I don't want to count on you not having, you know, having guests over and taking an extra long shower and it pushing your wall to failure or having family members have your, your occupancy doubles because you've got guests for six months or something. Um, I don't, I don't want to count on my clients living a, a, a low humidity kind of life uh, for, mm. to keep the wall safe. So I recommend installing exterior insulation instead to control condensation. I think it's more reliable, but again, it's more costly. And so here's where we've got a really, uh, architects have a real big challenge in that the safest way, safest, most energy efficient, most comfortable way of controlling condensation and complying with the code is more expensive than the less expensive but also more risky way. And mm -hmm. this is where a lot of, this is this gets very confusing because people will Google this and they'll be like, I'm confused. Some people say, don't do this. Other people say, it's totally fine. What do I do? Um, now that's one thing. The second part of all of this is, let's say you do this on the inside. You decide, okay, I'm gonna be really attentive to this and I'm gonna control condensation by having some sort of interior material that stops, that keeps the inside air in and keeps air away from my cold surface. It matters what material you use to do this. And if you, inexpensive materials are risky for a completely separate reason. So it's very common in Canada to use polyethylene, which is, you know, plastic, like the same stuff that your garbage bags are made out of. And the, that worked actually quite well in Canada for a very long time. Do you know what they didn't do in Canada for a long time? I'm from Canada growing up. They didn't mm. air condition. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the house I grew up in didn't have air conditioning. But it, was, it was relatively uncommon to have air conditioning in Canada. Now, how does this matter? The reason this matters is because when we air condition, this is all of this, what we're doing here is we're preventing a wintertime condensation problem or attempting to prevent right. the wintertime problem. So now yeah. our cold surface is the polyethylene. It's whatever this whatever this material is that we're trying to keep the inside air in, um, assuming we've been effective at it, we've now got a, cold, a new cold surface on the inside. And when hot, warm, moisture-laden exterior air gets through our wall and reaches that polyethylene, it'll condense and it's got yeah. nowhere to go. It can't, mm. it can't dry to the interior. So it just gets your wall wet and you have, this, you have the same problem. So now, and I want to point out here that this happens anyway. So even if you, let's take out the polyethylene, just, we've just got drywall in there. That's still, that's still a cold surface in summertime. It's still cold, but it's not cold enough for long enough to be a problem when we can, when we're using a material that allows the water, the condensation to dry to the interior, if that makes sense. So right. a lot of times people think of this as very black and white, like, well, I can't have condensation. Well, I've got news for you. You do probably. Uh, yeah. It just dries. It's allowed to dry. It's like breathing much the walls. Exactly. Breathing. Yes. Yeah. We like, yeah. Like if you have got, I've got a glass of water in my hand. If I go up to it and go, you know, I get condensation on my glass. Well, it just re-evaporates. Nothing bad happens. Right. So that's the, that's the, the problem. And, and this is actually very, the interior it's, it's, um, 
sort of generally best to avoid interior vapor barriers. So stuff like polyethylene that doesn't allow any drawing through it. But there are sort of in-between materials that allow just enough drawing to keep us out of trouble. Now, so there's uh, there's a material called, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of commercially available materials that you could use to keep inside air in, um, but still permit drawing, including painted drywall. If you detail your interior drywall to be continuous, it acts as it gives you interior vapor control. Now you have to make sure it's continuous, but it works just fine. The, the problem, then we go back to the problem, the reason I don't like this approach to begin with, is that it's um, it's difficult to make it perfect enough forever to not be risky in my view, which is why I always, if I, if I possibly can, I always want to insulate on the exterior and not rely yeah. on these interior methods. Now, this is the type of insulation. What about the, what about the, uh, or the, based on sort of location, there are, there are solutions by, that we can come across by, by choosing very specific insulations. So if you use spray foam insulation, spray foam insulation is airtight. And so now you don't, and it's very, very effective at actually at air sealing. So using spray foam insulation on the interior for it's not just its thermal capacity, but it's airtightness capacity ends up getting around this problem. It, it, it's a very effective way of controlling condensation. And in a cold climate, you need to use the closed cell variety of spray foam because it, it doesn't allow, it's airtight and it doesn't allow uh, water vapor to diffuse through it. This is more complicated, but just rule of thumb, closed cell insulation in cold climates. In warm climates, you can use um, any kind you want. You don't really need this in warm climates though. But um, that the, the beauty of spray foam is that it solves this problem for us. It gives us the, the air tightness that we might want. Um, it also is very thermally effective. So it performs very well, has a high R value per inch, which means we need you know, the, we need less of it to achieve the same insulating effect. Um, now, a lot, a lot of people do not like using spray foam for other reasons, but this mm. is the sort of big feature of the, of this category of product is that it, it solves some big problems for us. I don't have to insulate on the outside. So I, I very effectively control risk in this other way. Um, but yeah. a lot of people are just, they just don't want to use spray foam. They don't. Yeah. There's two objections, two categories of, of objection to spray foam. Number one, they, people object to it on the basis of how energy intensive it is to create in the first place. That's also true of some of other foam insulations, even not spray foam, but just like extruded polystyrene. So that's one reason. And then the second reason is they perceive it as being a, um, a health risk. And yeah. I don't really, um, this is, I'm not an expert in either of those, either of those things. I don't hesitate to recommend spray foam to my clients. I plan on insulating my own attic with it. Um, so I'm a, I'm a fan of the product, but I also certainly know people with, um, uh, preferences and chemical sensitivities that they, they just want to avoid it. And there are ways of avoiding it, but you, you start, you see here, uh, that there's start being a lot of trade-offs here. So I don't, you don't need to use interior spray foam to control condensation, you can use exterior insulation on the outside. Well, but what if I don't want to do that and I don't want to use spray foam? Okay. Well now you have to use, um, really, you have to be really good at being airtight on the inside and that's more risky. So, okay. So 
maybe you make that decision in climate zone five or colder climate zone six, you start, that starts becoming even more risky climate zone seven. mm -mm. And what if you're designing, I would never, ever do this. If you had an indoor pool, I mean, like you just could not possibly be good enough at it to, um, to, uh, to control moisture or a hospital, any kind of humid environment, this would be, this would be absurd. Uh, so, there's just a lot of trade-offs and it, and, and these decisions become, become kind of difficult. So the more preferences you have, the more difficult, I mean, this is true in everything, right? The more preferences you have, the harder it is to accommodate those preferences. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. So what about attic insulation? You brought up, you were going to use the foam insulation in your attic. So we have the same <clears throat> problem with roofs, but it's actually that we do in walls with condensation control. But the problem is exacerbated because we get no exterior drying through our shingles or through whatever we're using as our roof membrane. So we have that same issue. Remember I said, we can get condensation on the inside face of our exterior sheathing on a wall. We can get, but we just need to not get enough of it for long enough to create a problem. Well, on roofs, the stakes are a little higher because we don't we don't have the same drying that we have in um, in walls because we don't get drying through the shingles. So the the right now there's sort of two categories of roof. You can have a a vented roof, or a vented attic, or an unvented attic. And either way, you have what we're what we're doing is we're trying to control condensation. So our roof sheathing, the thing that the shingles and you have an underlayment too, but the thing that the shingles are on attached onto that material will be cold. There's plywood or OSB, whatever it is, that material is going to be cold in winter. So we're going to get warm, moisture-related interior air that goes through our ceiling, goes into our attic, hits that, that sheathing and condenses. The easiest, most cost-effective way of dealing with that moisture is by venting the roof. So you have an air intake at your, at your soffit and an outlet at the ridge. And we just flush that moisture out. So it's not and that you, the problem doesn't happen. We get condensation. We just dry it out by, right. with, by passing air over it. And it's, and it's sort of natural. It's very, it's very, very effective. So that would be so, when you're putting in a kind of like a open insulation, like fiberglass or right. cellulose. And, and so you're, thermal boundary, you're insulating on the, on the flat on your ceiling. So you've got, uh, if you picture a, a really simple house, like a, like a child would draw like a square with a triangle on top. So the triangle part is out is, is essentially outside. Um, okay. So what if someone's like trying to live in their attic, which so, a lot of people do around here? So that's different. So now we can't, we, we you can maybe try to still vent it, by install by keeping the insulation sort of uh you use what's called baffles and you keep the insulation one or two inches from from the roof deck this is hard very hard to picture if you don't if if uh if for a home i'll post some pictures it. of this from your instagram if that's okay if i can sure of course find appropriate ones um, okay and you can still vent it but it, it usually becomes a little bit more complicated. So we still have this cold surface. We still have to flush the moisture out. Um, the other problem is a lot of times we don't pick roofs that are like the triangle over the square. We have complicated geometries and, all, and we want to live in part of the attic, but not part of the other parts. And it gets very complicated. So 
Again, the easiest, lowest risk thing to do to control condensation is to prevent it from happening in the first place and to warm that sheathing. So insulating, you can insulate on top of your roof too. So you have your plywood roof deck, you put insulation, you and now you need, a, you need a rigid insulation. Then, um, then it depends on if you have a flat roof or a pitched roof, and then you, you keep going from there. You're, you want to insulate on top of your roof deck, and you, and you want to live in your attic. You want to do some stuff in your attic. And let's say you've also kind of got a complicated roof line. The easiest thing to do is to insulate on top. So you, you need a moisture tolerant insulation and you insulate on top of your plywood, whatever your OSB, whatever you're using. The concept is we need at least some amount of the, the sort of short answer. And we'll get to why is you don't have to do all of it on top, but because yeah. we, we just need to, can, we need to keep that surface just actually I'll answer it now. We need to keep the surface just warm enough to where condensation doesn't happen. So your beer can be cold to a point. It just can't be colder <laughs> right. than whatever for us to have a problem. And we figured this like magic. We've actually figured this out. We can, building science is a great thing. So we know how much, how much insulation we need and follow the code. It'll tell you how much you need. Um, but, but the approach, the concept is put the insulation over top of, of your roof deck, which is the surface you want to keep warm. And now you don't have to vent it to flush out the moisture because we don't get condensation in the first place. Right. The problem with that is it's expensive. It's very expensive to, I mean, it's not very expensive to do it. It's comparatively very expensive to do it. And again, we have more of these, these same trade-offs where someone's like, well, I don't want to use foam insulation, which is the sort of natural choice on top of a roof deck because um, it's moisture tolerant. Mm-hmm. And the problem with this, again, with our, with this, we, we end up with the same issue that we had with walls we end up with a lot of preferences that are sometimes hard to reconcile. So the easiest, lowest cost way of of dealing with this issue of potential condensation in our roofs is to vent the roof. And that works in every climate. It's very, very effective and it's very inexpensive. We can use whatever insulation we want on on the flat part of our roof, like the top of the square, like that the child would draw. So we have sort of maximum flexibility and type of insulation, and it's it's very low cost. The problem is, well, venting roofs depends on having relatively simple roof lines and not, uh, you can sometimes occupy the attic and still vent the roof, but that becomes a little bit more complicated. We just add, we keep adding complexity to this with the more, the more stuff we try to do. So you can insulate on the exterior and have that, have that work. And again, that's quite expensive. So here again is where spray foam becomes a presents itself as this wonderful solution in that it has very high R value per inch. So you can achieve your con, you can achieve that condensation control because it's so airtight and, um, and it doesn't take up a whole lot of room and you can occupy your attic. So same as the wall, it solves a really difficult problem for us. It means we don't, we get to avoid insulating on top of the roof deck, which is a, a labor issue as much as it is a, like just a product issue. You have to get your, your roofer has to be okay with installing exterior insulation. That's, that would yeah. have been my preference for my own home. I, I live in Dallas. And even though it's not required by code, I want to live in an energy efficient home. I'd, I'd rather occupy, you know, condition my attic and insulate on top. Well, it's just not realistic to find a roofer who's going to be able to do that in my area. So I either 
make do with, you know, air seal the best I can in a ceiling. That's very difficult to do in a ceiling because we've got lights and electrical stuff and plumbing vent stacks and all kinds of stuff. But you can do reasonably well if you're paying attention to, to making your, your ceiling airtight now. And that's not for condensation control because we're venting our roofs. That's more for, um, for uh, energy efficiency and comfort. So you can mm-hmm. do, you know, try to do your best at doing that and, and then use a, uh, whatever insulation you want or use spray foam. It seems to come back down to spray foam, especially in a lot of the people who are doing work on an existing house that is, yeah. and they're not doing the roof typically. I mean, it's pretty common for me to do these third floor attic renovations. No roofing is planned. Um, and spray foam is basically the option. It gives, it's, it gives you such a great bang for your buck in terms of performance, especially in retrofits, because yeah. you, you just don't have as much flexibility. So this is why I'm doing it in, in my own house. Um, although I'm staging this work, right? Like most people, I'm not doing, I'm not doing every single renovation all at once, but the idea is to condit what we, what we call condition the attic. Now I'm not intending to live up there. There's not enough room, but I live in an old house and it would be really nice to have a place to put you know, our winter clothes and our skis storage mm-hmm. up there would be, would be pretty nice. And, um, and it would be nice if that storage could be temperature regulated. Um, the other thing that closed cell spray foam does is it greatly increases the uh, wind uplift resistance of your roof, which is great if you live in an area that's prone to hurricanes. Um, or heavy storms or something like that, you're just a lot less likely to lose your roof. And that's a, that's a really big deal in terms of how, how uh, resilient your home is to this kind of damage. If you lose your roof in a big storm, like it, that's just, you can afford to have your windows leak a little bit, but if you lose your roof, it's, that's it. You're, yeah, that's your, but no, the spray foam really helps for that a lot. So I'm, my climate in Texas is mild enough that I could use open cell spray foam, which is less expensive than closed cell. And, uh, and that's sufficient for me to control condensation, but I'm going to elect to use closed cell spray foam because I want the higher R value per inch. I'm a geek and I want more energy efficiency. And, um, and I like the, this house is a hundred years old and I want to give, I want to give it another hundred years. And if I can make that roof nice and strong, I see that as a, as a benefit. Um, closed cell spray foam also tends to be pretty, a little bit more effective than open cell at air sealing, especially at the uh, wall to roof connection. And, um, and that's, a, that's appealing to me as well. Anyway, so there's, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to like about spray foam for certain kinds of people. But it's also, yep. you know, it's, it's also, it takes a lot of skill to install it. You can't, this isn't just a get a, you know, a laborer who's inexperienced should not be on this crew. It's, um, it's dangerous to install. You need proper safety precautions and the equipment needs to be very well maintained. It spray foam is, comes in like a a two-part mixture where you mix sort of part A and part B and they mix in, in the, what's called a gun that they, they spray it on. It's sort of like kind of the rig kind of looks like, um, if you've ever seen, spray applied painting done. It kind of looks like that, but what comes out is a foam, but the mix happens as you're spraying it. And so if the gun is clogged or something messes up that part A, part B mix, um, it can be really bad. 
the, the uh, foam can off gas for a long time. Uh, and if you end up with a problem, now you have to remove it, which is pretty costly. Like this is not an area where you economize on, on expertise. Like you, you want a very experienced crew doing this work. Uh, and you should think about the, think about the risks. Um, now not everybody wants to do that again. Not everybody wants to do this. They don't like, they hear this and they're like, I don't, this is too many chemicals. I don't want this. And that's fine. There are plenty of alternatives, but those alternatives have consequences. So if you're going to vent your roof, you need a more simple roof line, period. You just do, mm. or you pony up for exterior insulation on your roof. So it sounds like cellulose for the blown in cellulose or uh, fiberglass or sheep's wool or whatever, all of that stuff, you really need to be thinking about where, where that, how the whole assembly is going to breathe and where so the cold line is. You need is. to be controlling condensation. So if you're right. going to use, uh, if you're going to use a, an insulation that's moisture sensitive, like those options, bone cellulose, sheep's wool, whatever, um, you need to find some other way of controlling condensation. And there are other ways of doing that, but it's, they, they, there's a, there's sort of a, a cost to doing so sometimes an aesthetic cost, sometimes like an actual dollar cost. Right. But there's a, there's a, there are trade-offs with ev any product has trade-offs. This is not to suggest that that's there's like unique trade-offs to, to these products. Like they all, right. every, any design decision you make there, that's why it's a decision, right? You pick one thing and not another thing. So there's, there's trade-offs to it. And the big trade-off is, uh, I guess there's the two trade-offs really both relate to water. It's, uh, am I putting it in a location where it's protected from the elements? Most of the time, the answer is yes. You're putting it inside, but you mm -hmm. couldn't insight with sheep's wool on the exterior of your well, no, don't do that. You wouldn't even do it. I mean, it would be hard to do it anyway, but you wouldn't do that. Well, sheep's wool. Sheep's wool. I just brought that up as like a very I know. I know. I'm, it's also too loose, right? You'd need, you'd need like a, you'd need some sort of board product on the outside to physically support it. But the, the, the two concerns are going to be, am I protecting, am I using something that's moisture sensitive? And if so, am I protecting it from wetting from rain and, or groundwater, I guess, presumably if we're talking about basements. Um, and number two, if I'm, if I'm using this kind of product that is moisture sensitive, and even if I'm not, how am I controlling condensation in my walls and in my roof? Do I have any cold surfaces that I need to either warm up or keep air from reaching them? So those are the, those are the big questions. And then the other stuff that I'm not an expert on, but that people tend to, you know, some people tend to care a great deal about depends on how far down this rabbit hole you want to go. Uh, but there are, of course, people have all kinds of preferences about how, how the product is produced, who sells it, whether they like mm -hmm. the people who sell it. That's a, that's, that matters. And that's okay. Uh, if you have an installer that's, that's really comfortable with it, that recommends it, how, how good do you feel about it? Those, those, those are factors that matter too. And it's, this isn't to say that I don't want that in this conversation to say that any one of these things is more important. They're all, they're all factors that need to be considered and weighed very carefully. Well, <laughs> I have to say that I don't feel any better about the insulation choices than I did before. Um, There's nothing and, magic. I, I mean, in some ways that should make you feel a little better is that, I mean, better and worse, I guess it's that there's nothing magic about any of these. They all mm -hmm. come with um, trade-offs and the, the difficulty about design is trying to pick the option that suits 
whatever your case is the best. You know, is it a retrofit? Is it new construction? What's your budget? What are your expectations regarding performance? What are your expectations regarding durability? How do you plan on living in the house? The decision you make if you've got, uh, you know, a modestly sized home that you plan on having a lot of people in <laughs> is, is different than, well, I'm a, you know, I'm retired. I occasionally have guests and I live alone. These are different decisions. Uh, so it's well, messy and complicated. That's the part that's hard. But yeah. I guess it, it, a lot of times people get sort of a lot of anxiety over this thinking there's one right answer. And um, if I could only find it, then things would be easier for me. So it's not that people are confused because it is in fact confusing and difficult. So that's the part that feels good. You're not alone. But the part that's hard is like, oh yeah, I have to, this is hard. <laughs> it's hard for everybody. <laughs> you yeah. find your sweet spot. I'm going to link to your information, but where can, tell me about how people can find you. I know you have an awesome Instagram account. So my Instagram account is, um, it's called Building Science Fight Club, and it really is more for professionals. So uh, yeah, it's it, for professionals. I mean, yeah. you, certainly if you're, there are lots of people who like to geek out on this stuff and that's, I would love to have you. That's great. If somebody's listening and says, Hey, this is really cool, but this is, um, the, the audience, the intended audience is really practicing professionals. So, um, but the, that's a good source for information. You can find me there. I teach core, I teach architects courses and that's on, um, building Again, it's for a professional audience, but it doesn't presume any special knowledge on anybody's part. So as long as you can read architectural drawings, like, you know, what a plan in a section is. Uh, and as long as you're familiar with, have a general understanding of how the profession is organized, right? Like you hire an architect, the architect does the design, a builder builds. <laughs> That's pretty much all you need. Um, yeah. You could, it, it, certainly somebody who has that knowledge, there's, there's no other, there's no special knowledge that someone needs to take it. So if you're really interested, buildingsciencefightclub.com, take the course. Like HDTV has convinced a lot of homeowners that, that this stuff is easy and it is not easy. And this is why you hire a designer. And it's okay if your builder or your architect is not an expert in everything. That's okay. And yeah. so well, you've got, it's actually impossible to be an right, expert. In it's everything. not possible. So if you've got an architect that you, like a lot of people ask me this too, because they see my Instagram page and they're like, oh my goodness, like there's all this technical stuff that I didn't know existed. How can I be sure that the architect I hire knows this? I don't have the solution here, but this is what I tell people. So I tell people, ask them, ask your architect or your builder what their comfort level is with a lot of this stuff. And they should be able to, everybody's going to say, I build high quality stuff. I design high quality stuff. Everybody's going to say that, but listen to what they're really telling you. If, if they can they should be able to give you a more or less coherent approach to their design with respect to uh, energy efficiency and water management. They, sh they should be able to, to do that. Um, and then the second thing is, if your architect or your builder does not have this level of competence, go hire someone who does. Like, like work with your architect that you like for all kinds of reasons that you like your architect. You get along really well. You think the design is going to make your heart sing when you are <laughs> living in your space, go work with that person, but just 
add to the budget a the the cost of a consultant for building science consulting on um, on a relatively simple house. It's um, you can hire someone pretty good for about five thousand dollars. Um, it goes up from there. The more complex your house is, the more kind of crazy it gets. But as a percentage of this is most people's largest single investment. So hire the team that's going to get you what you really want. And it's okay if not all of the skill sets exist in one person. And we do this. Yeah. Weirdly, we do this with, um, we sort of expect this out of contractors, but not not as not out of our designers a lot of times. Like nobody expects your roofer to install the bathroom tile. Like nobody expects those two people to do the same thing. Um, and it's true for design too. The person who's gonna design you the kitchen of your dreams doesn't have to be the same person who tells you how to insulate your attic. So that is a very good point. Pick someone, pick someone, pick a, pick a good team. That is good advice. Well, thank you. I hope, thank I hope you. it works for people. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I wouldn't be able to do this without you, the listener. I invite you to join me on Instagram at Talking Home Renovations, where we are building up a friendly community. Other ways to get in touch are in the show notes, including the weekly newsletter that includes photos from the episodes. It's kind of worth signing up for that. Talking Home Renovations with Alice Maven is proud to be a member of Gable Media, the most engaged AEC network on the planet. If you're into architecture, check out what the network has to offer at gablemedia.com. That is G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. Until next time, take it easy.